Once again, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the first epistle of Peter. First Peter, chapter 1. And looking to the words given in verses 10 through 12 of 1 Peter, I want to preach a message entitled, The Message and Ministry of the Prophets. The Message and Ministry of the Prophets. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love, in whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. And here is the focus of my message this morning. Peter says, verse 10, of which salvation, referring to the salvation that Peter has just been describing in verses 2 through 9. The salvation that is rooted in God's electing and foreknowing grace. The salvation that God mercifully brings through the regenerating power of the new birth unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Peter says, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace That should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Now, before I expound upon what Peter says in verses 10 through 12, let me remind you that Peter's aim in writing this letter is to encourage Christians who have been grieved by various trials. 
Peter notes in verse 1 that the specific people he is addressing are those who have been driven from their homes and communities throughout the ancient world because of their faith in Jesus Christ. These are a persecuted people. And if you will carefully read the whole of Peter's letter, you will find that Peter is writing to a people who are Christian people, nonetheless a discouraged group of Christian people. He is writing to believers who are suffering. He is writing to genuine followers of Christ who are facing fiery trials, as Peter calls it in 1 Peter chapter 4. They are being reproached for their faith in Christ. No doubt due to the nature of all that they are dealing with, these people were tempted to become mentally anxious, emotionally agitated, and spiritually discouraged even to the point where they became allured by the flesh to question God's purposes. Look, let's not sugarcoat anything this morning. If there's one thing about the Bible that is a practical help and an encouragement to us, it is the fact that God exposes Christian people, especially Christian people dealing with trials as they are in their finite, weak, imperfect human nature. And isn't this what causes us to relate to the testimonies of Job and David and Jeremiah and Elijah and Mary and Martha? These God-fearing Christian men and women who were faithful and fervent Christians, who had an inward hope and joy and peace that no man could take away, went through times in their lives where they struggled with impatience and fear and even unbelief. And this was so with Peter, the author of this epistle. Knowing the weakness of the flesh during times of trial, in a very real and in a very experiential way, Peter is seeking to provide practical spiritual counsel to God's people in the midst of their troubles. And we find here in the first 12 verses of Peter that the way in which he is seeking to encourage the hearts of these suffering saints in the Lord comes by way of reminding them and reassuring them of how blessed they are in Christ by explaining for them how God brought them to Himself in salvation. Said another way, during a time in which their affections for Christ were tempted to grow cold, Peter is seeking to warm their hearts by the fire of God's love for them. And Peter is very wise in doing this. Because during times of great trial, we are tempted in three particular ways. During times of trouble, during times of trial, all of us are tempted Number one, to focus on that which is physical rather than that which is spiritual. In times of great trouble, in times of great trial, all of us face instances in which we are tempted 
to focus on that which we don't have more than that which we have. In times of great trouble, in in times of great trials, we are all tempted. Like Job. Like David. Like Jeremiah and Elijah and Mary and Martha and these people. We are tempted to question if God loves us. We're tempted to question if God really knows what we're going through. So here are a people, like you and me, they are weighed down with manifold temptations. They are going through a fiery trial. And what are they tempted to do? They are tempted to focus on that which is physical. It is probable that they are tempted to make statements such as, we don't have our physical homes anymore. We've been scattered from our communities. We don't have the belongings in our homes that we once treasured. Does God even love us? Why are we going through this? And what is God's ultimate purpose through it all? And in the first 12 verses of Peter, Peter says, listen, you may have been and continue to be scorned by men. But you need to rejoice because you've been selected by God. You may have lost your jobs. You may have lost your money, your homes. But through the new birth, God has promised to you an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, that doesn't fade away. You may be going through a hot fire, but you can be glad knowing that God will purify you in that fire and one day pluck you from the fire of this world so that you receive the end of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. Do you see the wisdom of Peter here? Peter is seeking to correct their blurred vision and thus cause them to see and to see clearly the love of God by putting on gospel glasses. Peter is vigorously pouring gasoline on the flame of their faith so that they will be consumed with praise toward God rather than their passing problems. And continuing on that note, beginning in verse 10, Peter highlights two primary features of the Old Testament prophets. Specifically speaking, he notes the dominant declaration of the prophets and the driving desire of the prophets. And if you're taking notes this morning, the two headings guiding all that I want to say are the dominant declaration of the prophets and the driving desire of the prophets. Now, looking to our first point, I want you to notice Peter's emphasis on the prophecies of the prophets. Peter says, verse 10, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace That should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ 
which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the suffering of Christ and the glory that should follow. Did you catch what Peter says? He says that the dominating declaration of the prophets was and is the message of the gospel, which is the message concerning how sinful men can be reconciled to a holy God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter says, regarding the prophecies declared by the lips of the prophets and preserved in the Old Testament writings from Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and all who are regarded as true prophets of the Lord, the focus of their message is the message of salvation that would be brought about by the promised Messiah and ultimately fulfilled in a body of believers consisting of both Jews and Gentiles. Now, don't lose me here, because what Peter says is vitally important, especially in this day with so many so-called prophecy experts who hold prophecy conferences, who sadly twist the clear unifying message of Scripture to their own destruction and the church's confusion. Peter is saying that the prophets prophesied, they preached, they declared by divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit a message to a people living in their generation, the message of God's saving grace that is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Peter is saying that the dominating message of the prophets is not, catch it, is not the second coming of Christ. It is not the millennial reign of Christ. Peter is saying that the dominating message of the prophets is not the superior nature of a physical nation, namely Israel. Peter says the dominating message of the prophets is the message of God establishing a holy nation, a peculiar people, a chosen generation made up of people from every kindred, tongue, and people who belong to Christ. Peter is saying to these people that the gospel message that they've come to believe, the gospel message that they have heard, that has birthed them into the kingdom of God, that has given them a lively hope, is not a new message. It is an old message. And Peter wants those who would receive his letter to know that the message of the prophets was not some abstract message spoken into the air, directed at no one in particular, it was directed of and for a specific people. Peter says the prophets of old were not speaking of blessings and benefits that concerned only their generation, but generations to follow. Because the prophets prophesied primarily, primarily of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now before we go on, I want to take a moment to express that what Peter is saying here 
coincides with Jesus' understanding of the Old Testament Scriptures. Now let me give you three examples to prove my point. In Luke chapter 4, we find that when Jesus comes into Nazareth, his own hometown, when he enters into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, in this particular instance, Jesus stands up to read the writings of the prophet Isaiah, specifically the words of Isaiah given in Isaiah chapter 61, which read this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And following Jesus' reading of the text, he proclaimed that Isaiah's words, which are words of Scripture, were fulfilled in their hearing that day. Teaching us then that what was spoken of Isaiah hundreds of years before Christ came to earth, hundreds of years before this message was declared to that synagogue in Nazareth on that day. Isaiah was speaking of the Messiah preaching the gospel and accomplishing his, his mission to seek and to save that which is lost. What did Isaiah speak about? He spoke of Christ. He spoke of His coming. He spoke of His preaching. He spoke of His healing others. He spoke of His redemption. The second and third example Jesus gives regarding what he believed the prophets primarily prophesied about is found in Luke 24. In Luke 24, as two men were talking together as they traveled to Emmaus, you'll remember Jesus approached them, questioning them about their sad countenance and their troubled communications. You remember the two men. And Jesus approaches them as they're traveling. They do not know that He is the Christ, the Messiah who has just died. And Jesus comes to them in so many words says, Men, what's wrong? Why are you of a sad countenance? What seems to be the issue? And they turn to Jesus and says, Where have you been? It's in the Greek. Where have you been? Haven't you heard? Haven't you seen all that's taken place in Jerusalem, we trusted that this man, Jesus, was who he said he was. We trusted that this man, Jesus, would redeem Israel. And do you remember Jesus' response to these two men? Jesus says, Oh, fools, and slow of heart to believe. All that the prophets have spoken. And then we read verse 27. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Salvation. The gospel. The plan of redemption. His birth, His life, His ministry, His death, His resurrection. And later in that chapter, as Jesus stands in the midst of the disciples, 
declaring peace to them. Jesus affirms to them that all that they have been witnessing of his life, of Christ's ministry, of his crucifixion and resurrection is what he was previously teaching them, which is the fulfillment of Scripture. The Bible says, and he said unto them, his apostles, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding, that they might understand the Scriptures, and said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and ye are witnesses of these things. What things? The things that the prophets declared about in Christ. The point I am trying to make from these three references of Christ's interpretation of Old Testament Scripture is this. Both Jesus and Peter teach us that the dominating declaration of Old Testament Scripture, specifically of the prophets, is about the promised seed of Genesis 3.15. The dominating truth of all the prophecies of the prophets center around and are fixed upon the one who would be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, so that by his stripes we can be healed. Now looking now to the second primary feature regarding the Old Testament prophets, I want you to notice Peter's highlighting of the driving desire of the prophets. So he gives us first the dominating declaration, what they said, where their focus was. As they said it, they were speaking of Christ, His coming, His salvation, His saving of not only the Jews, but the Gentiles. He's the Savior of the world, of all men and all tribes and all places. This was the dominating declaration of the prophets. They preached the gospel. Because it's through the gospel that men can be saved. Even in the Old Testament, yes. Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. The Old Testament saints were not saved by works. They were not saved by circumcision. They were not saved by keeping the law. They were not saved through their sacrifices. They were saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the message of the prophets. This is what Peter is telling them. And then he turns now to describe the driving desire of the prophets. Verse 10. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. What Peter is saying here is this. As the prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit to declare and record truths about Christ and the message of eternal salvation that comes by Christ, they earnestly yearned to know the fullness 
of that message. In other words, while they understood the fundamental truths about the gospel they declared, because they were saved by it, they wanted to search out the glorious truths of Christ, His atoning work, and how He would engraft the Gentiles into the vine and see that His message, the gospel message, spread around the earth. They wanted to know that more. Peter is teaching us here that the prophets were students of their own prophecies. Or said another way, the prophets were Bible students who prayerfully examined the types, the shadows and figures of Christ so that they might know Him, so that they might feast upon Him, and so that they might delight in Him. They knew Christ, but they wanted to know more of Christ. God, by His Spirit, revealed the needed truth for them to be saved. But they were not content with a mere saving knowledge of Christ. They wanted a deeper sanctifying and communing knowledge of Christ. And this leads us to two points of application that I want to press on your hearts this morning. And the first and obvious point of application is this. Like the prophets, it ought to be our delight to diligently search out the truths of God's Word. Specifically, truths concerning Christ, truths concerning the gospel and salvation. This is the application of the text. If the Old Testament prophets searched diligently into the truths of salvation with their limited revelation of truth, how much more should we search into this subject Now that we have the complete Word of God. So let me ask you this morning. How is your relationship with God's Word? Do you have a relationship with God's Word? Are you reading God's Word daily? Are you meditating upon its truths? When you read it, are you seeking to mine out Truths regarding the gospel and salvation. Look, just two weeks ago, I spoke of God's electing and foreknowing grace from verse 2. These are biblical truths. These are truths. The truths of election, predestination, foreknowledge, which are the heartbeat of the gospel. You don't need to be frightened by such truth. You need to be like the prophets and inquire and search out what these truths mean and how they apply to your life. God has put these truths in the Bible for your personal benefit, for your spiritual growth, and for your persevering encouragement. So let's look at the practical. Now, practically speaking... Contextually speaking, the greatest encouragement to the heart of a Christian during trying times is the ruminating upon God's love for them in Christ. And this is what Peter is encouraging these discouraged Christians to do. He's encouraging them to be like the prophets. He's encouraging them to think on Christ. 
to remember his sufferings, their suffering. But Peter's calling them to remember his sufferings for them. He is calling his readers to recall God's love for them, not just in a general sense, but in a personal sense. Look, Peter says that God, through the prophets, prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. He personalizes it. This message has been given throughout history for for you. Christ died for you. God loves the world, yes, but He loves you. He desires a relationship with you. Let me be real honest for a moment. Let me say, most times, we are the cause of our own ongoing discouragements. God in His Word, through the message of the Gospel, has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him that has called us unto glory and virtue. God has given us in His Word exceeding great and precious promises that can strengthen us, that can encourage us and draw us close to God during times of great trouble and trial. And do you know what we do? We set them aside and watch more of our television shows. Rather than scroll through the text, we're scrolling through our Facebook accounts. And then we complain that God is standing afar from us. That God has forsaken us when the reality is... We are the ones forsaking the means of obtaining spiritual joy and peace in the Lord. And what are those means? The means is the word of God and the precious gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you want to have perfect peace? Do you want to have a peace that passes all understanding? God tells us that you must set your mind to be stayed upon him. That will give him perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusted in thee. Do you want to be encouraged during times of difficulty? You must set your affections on things above, not on things of the earth. Set your affection on Christ. Let me say, some of you are spiritually famished. Some of you are weak because you are not feasting on the riches of God's grace in Christ. You're not. You read the Bible, yes, but it's only in a factual sense. It's only in a historical sense. It's only in a physical sense. It's only in a theological sense. If you are to profit from reading the Bible, you must learn to read the Scriptures feasting upon Christ. Listen, the Bible is a Christocentric book, meaning... It's all about Him. Man shall not live by bread alone, physical bread, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Man is to live by spiritual bread, the manna, Christ. Don't you realize every promise of Christ given to us in Scripture is a refreshing drop of water that satisfies the soul? So don't complain to me that your soul's dry when you neglect the well of water given in the Word. 
Listen, what I'm telling you is true. Think about it. How did the Old Testament prophets persevere in ministry? How did the Old Testament prophets endure all that they did in their imprisonments? Have you been to prison for your faith? Let me see. Nope. These are real accounts. These are not fictional. They're factual. How did the prophets endure their captivities? Let me look. Have any of you been stripped from your homes and taken to a foreign land? Nope. How did they endure in their faith? We go through a little trial and think our world's flipped upside down. How did the prophets learn to adjust to new cultures and new languages and a new way of life? I'll tell you, they constantly meditated upon the sufferings of Christ. They found hope in Him. And so it must be with us. This is not some theory. This is true. The Christian life is very practical. It's a relationship with the Son of God. It's not a religious routine. It's not some dull duty that we go through. It's walking and abiding in Christ, our Savior, our Lord, who's our encouragement. This is application number one. Like the prophets, it ought to be our delight, not our dread. I said our delight. First John tells us, John, that the commandments of God are not burdensome to us. Oh, we have to read the Word of God again because the pastor said. The pastor wants us to read the Bible through in a year. So I guess I better read the Bible to check off the box. That's a dread. True Christians don't live for Christ in a dread. They live for Christ in delight. The prophets delighted to search out the truths of God's Word that spoke of Christ. That was their honey. That was their milk. That was their sustainment. So we have the responsibility to search out, to diligently search out the truths of God's Word. Not five minutes. Not ten minutes. Give more time. Turn off your dumb phone, even if it's a smartphone. Turn it off. Fast from Facebook for a day. You can do it. I know. It's a great hardship, but you can do it. Give 24 hours to just meditate on the sufferings of Christ, especially if you're discouraged, especially if you're going through times of great trouble. Then application number two, the principal message we preach is Christ and Him crucified. Now, what did the prophets prophesy of? They prophesied of salvation. They prophesied, our text tells us, of the grace of God. And if this was their message, what should our message be? Do we have two gods? Do we have two Gospels? No. We have one God who's given us one Gospel. What's the message we should proclaim this morning? What's the message our church should diligently affirm and hold on to tightly? Is it the message of moralism? Political and social reform? Critical race theory? Religious tradition? Philosophy? Should our main message be who the Antichrist is? 
or vague, minute details on the particulars of the end times? What is the only message of hope for Christians and this lost world? It's Christ. It's His death. It's it's His atoning sacrifice on the cross. It's His resurrection. It's His ability to save. It's His grace, His mercy, His perfections, His willingness to accept sinners, and His ability to keep sinners. Do you see the message of Christians and the message of churches that belong to Christ ought to be Christ. Now we know this and we say this, but it's one thing to actually say that we do it. It's another thing to actually do it. The apostles went everywhere in the acts of the apostles preaching one message. They preached Christ. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Philip took the eunuch as he was reading the scriptures. He opened to the passage in Isaiah, the prophets. What did he preach? He preached Christ to him. They preached. The new birth. They preach about the ruin of man. The redemption of Jesus' blood. And the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. Because it is the singular message. That is the power of God unto salvation. Listen church. We cannot. We must not become sidetracked by any other message. Some churches are. I'm amazed. I'm amazed. At how many pastors, even good men, so many pastors who try to unravel that which cannot be unraveled. So many pastors spend weeks and months and years trying to unravel the mysteries of the revelation. Putting half their congregation to sleep while confusing the second half. How does that help them? I'm amazed at how many so-called pastors and preachers are preaching a message of morality. Even so-called Baptist preachers. They're not preaching the gospel. They're preaching morality. I think it was George Whitfield who said in his day that most preach a message of morality, not the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's the message of morality? Here it is. Be a better person. Try harder. Live your best life now. Just live as if every day is a Friday. Be a nicer father. Be a a kind mother. Follow these ten steps on how you can be successful in this area of life. Morality. Just put on Christian truths as an external ornament of your life rather than abide in Christ. I'm telling you this morning, our message is Christ. Our aim is not to preach about Christ but to preach Him so that others might seek Him and know Him. And under this point, let me drive home the fact that Peter notes that the prophets ministered not for their own profit, but for the profit of future generations. Verse 12, notice verse 12. The prophets prophesied the gospel and the apostles preached the gospel. They preached the saving grace of God in Christ unto you, Peter says. Now piece it all together. The prophets prophesied in their own generation. Can we all agree? 
But Peter says, that was not a dead-in audience. The prophets preached and ministered to the apostolic generation. The apostolic generation ministered for their generation, yes. But their generation ministered to the next generation and the following generation so that we might benefit from it all today. God has preserved the people. God has preserved the message throughout history for whose benefit? For our benefit. And if I'm reading this correctly, I'm persuaded that the prophets were part of the Great Commission before the Great Commission was ever given in Matthew 28. The prophets were the first evangelists. In a very real sense, they were part of the work of evangelism, preaching Christ as the Savior of the world, long before Christ commissioned His own disciples. That was a shadow of things to come. And what was the primary focus of the prophet's ministry? Here it is. Two simple features. They desire to know Christ and to make Him known. What is the apostolic focus of ministry? To know Christ To make Him known. Do you see the same message, the same mission of the prophets is the same message and mission of the apostles which is the same message and mission of the church today to know Christ, to make Him known. What is the sum of the Christian life? Here it is. This is the sum of the Christian life. Know Christ, make Him known. Dwell in the light. Be a light. Abide in Christ. Announce Christ. This is what Peter is reminding us. Because these troubled saints who are tempted to look down and wonder need to get their eyes lifted up and focused on the message and the mission. Likewise, it is with us. The Christian life Church life is not about us. He must increase. We must decrease. Psalm 115.1 Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto Thy name give glory for Thy mercy and for Thy truth's sake. So are you going through a time of trouble? Are you going through a time of heartache? Are you going through a time of trial? Are you tempted to question God's purposes? Are you tempted to question Why God has taken things away from you? Are are you tempted to look at that which is physical more than that which is spiritual? Are you tempted to focus on that which you don't have rather than that which you have? Peter is saying very practically here, get your eyes off of yourself. Set them on Christ and on others. Stop Dwelling on your problems. Start ministering for the generations to come. Suppose the prophets, in their prophesying, in their problems, just said, It's too hard. Too many disappointments. Too many troubles. Too many heartaches. I'm done. Guess what? You would not be here today. Suppose the apostles said the same thing. You would be suffering 
in hell because of your sin. You see, but God coming to them in His grace lifted up their eyes and said, Look, there's a greater cause than yourself. There's a greater cause even in the message I'm giving you now. You cannot see all that I'm going to do, but I'm going to save a multitude of people in the future that will consist of both Jew and Gentile people. And we are here because of their perseverance. Because they kept their eyes on Christ and the message of the gospel. And guess what? That's why we're here as a church 60 years later. Because people didn't argue about the color of the carpet. People didn't get sidetracked by trivial things. They didn't get swallowed up by the man-centered, entertainment-driven mythology of most churches. We need to have a softball team. We need to have a bowling league. We need to do this activity and that activity and this activity. And they, they just stuck to the things that God told them to stick to, which were, here it is, know Christ and make Him known. You want to know my ministry philosophy? Do you want to know why I do what I do in this church as a shepherd and a leader? It all boils down to two things. I want you to know Christ and make Him known. Everything else is trivial. Everything else really doesn't matter. Those are the two feet of walking with God and are affecting future generations to come. Know Christ. Make Him known. Now in conclusion, for those who may be here among us without Christ, without hope, without God in this world, let me encourage you to stand amazed at the nature of this book we call the Bible. This book we call the Bible contains 66 books written by 40 different authors over a span of 1,500 years, written in three different languages on three continents. It contains one message. That message is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That message was fulfilled in pinpoint detail in Christ. Hundreds of years before Christ came, the prophets prophesied in pinpoint detail exactly what should come. In His birth, in His life, in His death, in His resurrection. So let me say, only God, only God could have written this book. Only God could have brought all these things to pass. If you are someone who operates on facts and reasoning, I don't think I would be wrong to say that Christianity is the most factual, reasonable faith. So the exhortation to you this morning is search out the message of this book. Seek ye out the book of the Lord. And read, Isaiah says. Seek the Lord while He may be found. And call upon Him while He is near. Do you want to be saved? Do you see your need for Christ? Cast yourself on this message of grace. But God commended His love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's a message of grace. For by grace 
are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast.